You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know and understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, uh, what are we getting into this week? And I am I'm so excited for this. This week, we got a double doctor episode. Uh, we're joined by doctors Jose Vergara and Sarah Karpuchen. Uh, we are going to be covering Vladimir Nabokov's Signs in Symbols. It is a story that will involve mention of suicide, so if you'd prefer not to hear that discussion, uh, proceed with caution, and I will just make Cameron have to uh, you know, mark that down in the show notes. <laughs> Jose Vergara is an assistant professor of Russian on the Myra T. Cooley Lectureship at Bryn Mawr College. He is the author of All Futures Plunge to the Past, James Joyce in Russian Literature, published in 2021, which we've talked about once on the podcast before uh you should you know also check the show notes for that episode uh he is also the co-editor of a book that we're going to be talking a little bit about today reimagining the book of pedagogies for the 21st century published uh just last year 2022 and it's an open access if anybody wants to read which is wonderful his current research projects include a bilingual annotated digital edition of sasha sokolov's between dog and wolf and the study of contemporary russian prison writing Sarah Karpuchen uh, is a lecturer in Russian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her interests include queer and feminist thought and art, anthropology, philosophy of different sameness, diasporic identity-making, uses of the classical tradition, and Vladimir Nabokov. She is also one of the co-editors of the volume Reimagining Nabokov Pedagogies for the 21st Century, published last year. Again, open access, you should read it, or else. (laughs) Jose, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Signs and symbols. Do you mind, before we get into anything else, and we have a lot to cover here today, so you chose signs and symbols, and do you mind kind of talking through why you suggested that we we read signs and symbols to talk about Nabokov today? To me, signs and symbols is nice and short, first of all, and second of all, it's a nice introduction to uh, Nabokov's prose works and his art in general. Um, It is kind of an elevator pitch uh, for his art that I use in my Nabokov course that I teach every fall. And it includes two impulses, I would say. Uh, one that invites the specifically Nabokovian reading, which is controlled and predetermined in its outcome. And the other one, which is disrupts, uh, which disrupts and resists it, uh, leaves all interpretive conclusions inconclusive. And It differs in terms of reception by a specialist reader and a student. And the specialist reader tends to kind of look for that predeterminate reading, that kind of answer to what the story is about. And the non-specialist reader, like a student, would encounter um, the indeterminacy of the outcome and kind of enjoy it, sit with it a little bit. And I appreciate, I think, both aspects of the story. And it's interesting to have a story that includes both somehow, magically. I would agree with that. Also, it's just a very readable story. It's six pages in length. And in those six pages, in relatively few words, Nabokov manages to convey so much tragedy 
Um, you can kind of dig around and we can talk about this tragedy in, in terms of history and what maybe has happened to the family at the, the core of the story in the past, um, kind of illusions and subtext there, um, tragedy um, in terms of this this boy's um, mental state and the, the sadness that his parents feel for him. Um, just a very moving story. And I think how compact it is um, speaks to, to the book of skill and conveying all of this in, in so few words. So speaking of the compactness of the plot, since that's a, that's a very good segue for Cameron to just give us one minute rundown on the plot. Absolutely. What happens in these six pages? In this very brief, I, know. Even, I know you're going to find out um, as we go. So in these very brief six pages, we have, in essence, the story of these two older people, these two immigrants to the U.S., uh, who are going to visit their son, who is in a, I don't know, a sanitarium or a, a mental hospital of some sort. Um, and they're, they're having a rough go of it. They're having, a, they're having a bad day. Everything is not going their way. And it gets worse when they get there. And the staff who uh, they have interacted with before and do not react well to them come out and say, hey, um, he tried to he attempted suicide last night. And we're worried that you and your presence will upset that and, you know, upset what we've managed to do since then. So they get sent home. Worse for the wear. Now it's raining. Things just bad day already getting worse. I think, I believe if I recall correctly, it's the son's birthday too, or it's nearby the son's birthday. So now their, their attempt to even just give him a gift is also swept away. As we kind of move on from there, we also are learning more about the son's past, how he started off as kind of like their, their dear child. But as he got older, his unique features, I guess we can call them his, his sort of idiosyncrasies went from being kind of their, their sign that this is, you know, a, a bright uh, a bright young man who's got a lot ahead of him, who's got a great world ahead of him, and is, in fact, uh, not doing so well and eventually leads him to be institutionalized um, as it happens. And from there, we follow back into talking more about kind of what how his mental state was, what led him to be institutionalized before we kind of jump back into the the current timeline where we have the they are on the same day, they've come home. It's now late at night. Um, after trying to go to bed, the husband kind of gets back up and comes back out to the living room where um, the wife is, is still in the in the living room, and he tells her he can't sleep, and he starts to come up with this plan to to get their son out of uh, to get their son and, and bring him home, and starts kind of as he's walking around, he's saying, "This is this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to take care of him. Uh, this is how we're going to make sure that he doesn't hurt himself." Um, and then as they're they're doing that, the phone rings, and the wife, who speaks English better than the husband, uh, she picks it up. And a dull voice, a young girl's voice on the other end, asks if she can speak to Charlie. And the wife says, no, you got the wrong number. She hangs up. And then the two go back to their conversation. The phone rings again and again. Uh, the same voice asks for Charlie. And the wife again says, you have the wrong number. Uh, I'll tell you what you're doing. You know, you're turning the, you're turning O zero rather than, uh, O rather than zero rather. And they, she puts it down again as they sit down to their tea um, now kind of you come into a, a very present moment with them as the passage extends. And then as you kind of th think upon the gift, which they got in their son, the, uh, jars of little, um, of little jellies, the phone rings one last time. And that's where we leave the story. So speaking of readings and writing non-specialist and specialist readings kind of leaves you in, uh, uh, an interesting place. And that interesting place is, is a point of, uh, is a point that we'll touch on a lot later 
Before we start jumping into the analysis, should we, should we talk a little bit more about, about Nabokov, talk a little bit about his background? I want to talk about his background. I want to talk about the, the editorial strife mm. when it came to publishing signs and symbols or symbols and signs, depending <laughs> on whichever you know, version you're looking at, depending on, on how hard the New Yorker has edited uh, the version you're reading. <laughs> That's right. Well, we'll have a link to, the, to an edition of it in the show notes. You should be aware um, it's a, it was printed originally. I, don't, I think it was printed originally in the New Yorker. They did make some changes to it, such as reversing the story as we know it now, signs and symbols to symbols and signs, as well as a few other changes. So <laughs> the title doesn't sound as good to me. Signs, signs and symbols sounds more natural. It does. It's because they're, they're, they're specialists. I wanted you to know that it's a symbol. <laughs> Maybe. I would love to have known what would have what was going through that editor's mind as they decided this is the cha- this is where we have to take a stand. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is something we need to change. I would also like to know what was going on in Catherine's white white's head uh, as she decided to change the title. I always assumed that signs and symbols is what it says on maps usually. When there's a legend at the bottom, like, oh, these are the symbols we're using on the map. And it's like a fixed expression. I always thought that Nabokov needed it to be in that order, in that particular phrase, not just because it's, I don't know, asymantic or whatever, uh, but because, you know, it's a it's a recognizable reference to uh, most American readers. I have no idea what, what, what was going on at the New Yorker and why they decided to change it. Um, but yes, they, they did. They changed, um, uh, the, uh, the, the way the paragraphs are broken in the story. And, um, I honestly am almost reluctant to go into the strife, uh, or the, I don't know, the, the controversy that, uh, or, or the riddle or whatever that may be surrounding the editorial changes, I usually tell my students and I usually rest with the idea that um, what Nabokov was doing when changing the New Yorker version to the second published version was simply just, you know, tidying things up. It just looks better. It reads better. He expanded some paragraphs, like the paragraph, the famous sentence about the mother's um, impression um, of uh, their life um, and the amount of tenderness that is crushed or wasted or turned into madness, all of that, uh, the the sentence that this phrase contains was expanded in the, uh, as far as I remember, was expanded in the second published version. And it sounds better. And it sounds more poignant and it sounds like more evocative of the sense of tragedy that they're all going through um so that being said i feel as a scholar i should be honest about the controversy and the puzzle that people identified and decided to solve once they've identified the the puzzle the uh, um paragraphs the way they're numbered and um, change of a letter from beach spelled B-E-E-C-H to 
to B E A C H. Um, it's it's a name of a jam. So beach plum spelled differently, uh, and the correct version is B E A C H, as far as I remember. And it was something else in the beginning, and one of the readers of Nabokov trained to look for puzzles and decipher them, decided that the original spelling, the incorrect one, was a reference to Buchenwald, because Buchenwald uh, is beach, wood, B-E-E-C-H. Um, so another Holocaust reference to somehow, by this hidden message, amplify the general anti um, Nazi sentiment, I guess, of, of the story. The reason I'm mentioning this is because people have tried to find it. People do pursue this as a kind of like um, a, a kind of referential mania that the boy is suffering from in the story. But uh, at the same time, I do not feel like it's changing the main thrust of the story. So I feel like we before we go into more of the analysis on signs and symbols, I kind of wanted to give our audience a little bit more of an overview of, because this is the first time that we've talked about Nabokov on the podcast, so this is wonderful, first of all, but I also kind of wanted to give a little bit more of a general kind of overview of how the scholarship has proceeded on him, and I know in your book, in your introduction, Sarah, you gave kind of a wonderful overview of this, and I was wondering if you might be able to just elaborate a little bit on you know, it's it's really good. It's really easy, I know, to condense just, you know, tens and tens of years, decades of scholarship into like a minute. Super easy <laughs> thing to do. So I was wondering if you might be able to just kind of briefly talk about some of the major trends, some of how Nabokov is brought now into the classroom, some of these challenges that we're facing uh, with him, with students, for instance. There's kind of a, a lot going on. It's a really interesting kind of subject that is both aside from science and symbols, but also kind of inherently related to to it and, you know, how we approach it as well. Yeah. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, th- a couple of generations, maybe three generations at this point of, of uh, Nabokov scholars um, trying to decipher all those riddles um, and puzzles and messages, hidden messages. Nabokov himself, in his later years, in his 40s and 50s, when he was especially, when he was teaching at a college, um, at colleges, various universities in America, became interested in producing some kind of roadmap uh, or set of instructions on how to read fiction, prose specifically, his particular realm. In those instructions, for his students primarily, mind you, not for his own readers, not for critics, not for academics, for his students. Uh, he emphasized the importance of imagination, artistry, artifice, uh, in fact, and, and some X factor, some unknown element that cannot be predicted, cannot be quantified, but that animates and illuminates a work of art um, when it becomes a work of art at the hands of a writer of genius, obviously. The first generation of the book of scholars who had the advantage of, first of all, being students in some cases of Nabokov when he was teaching. Um, and second of all, 
those of scholars who saw what Nabokov wanted to see in other people's prose works when he was a teacher, took those sets of instructions as kind of like, um, again, a set of instructions on how to read Nabokov himself. So they extrapolated those onto him. And at the same time, there were various academic trends of um, literary scholarship that go about the, 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 the work of interpreting a work of art uh, in different ways. And predominantly in the Russian tradition, this is Russian formalism and then new criticism in the Anglo-American tradition. All of those together. So Nabokov's own set of instructions and then academic traditions within various uh, cultural traditions kind of adjacent to Nabokov's work. Uh, created that first wave of Nabokov scholarship, which was about close reading, about artifice and artistry. And very often, because Nabokov tried to send this message in his interviews and in his paratextual statements, he would often say that, oh, I have a message in all of my books. It's just a matter of finding it and then deciphering it. Um Something very Joyce and by the way, I think Jose can probably say more about this. Um, so how to ensure immortality in uh, in posterity, right? You 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 create a bunch of riddles or you pretend to create a bunch of riddles, and then you convince your readers and critics and academics that, oh, you guys will be busy for the next hundred of years, uh, you know, deciphering those. That was the first wave. The second wave, third wave kind of amplified and built on that. And the most important development in the second generation of the Mokov school is probably, or maybe one and a, uh, one and a half, uh, would be uh, the addition of the metaphysical dimension. So the tradition of interpreting Nabokov's work as if hinting at some kind of ineffable metaphysical knowledge, something about the life in the beyond, the other world, to, to, to quote the title of the fundamental, the seminal work in that uh, vein of Nabokov scholarship. Uh, and that was 1990s. And then a combination of all those, so intertextual, close reading, and then metaphysical, uh, various kinds. Signs and symbols kind of gives uh, material to all of them. You can read it as a hidden, ineffable, inarticulate, indeterminate message about the afterlife, or you can read it as a clever puzzle. It's a cleverly constructed story. It's a tantalizingly constructed story. Um, and you can guess or try to guess what the author intended or what... The author knew uh, about what he was trying to do. The, the final thought that I had uh, about this was about the current state of Nabokov scholarship, which is in a state of productive disarray, I would say. Uh, but that's my impression, and I feel like my impression is very limited. Uh, and I'm kind of focused on the project that Jose and I uh, did last, which was so exciting for that very reason. Like, it tried to be... Uh, revolutionary, <laughs> I don't know, um, radical, uh, but I'm not sure if that's 
Jose's impression. Uh, I think we talked about this, about how radical we wanted this project to be or how radical it ended up being. Um, but in in one way, at least as far as I'm concerned, I, I do believe that there's a demand at least on the part of students to question some of the answers that previous traditions of Nabokov scholarship gave to some of the questions that his art poses. Uh, and maybe identify other questions that previous traditions never asked. Um, uh, and I really hope this is the way it goes. It remains to be seen, but um, that's that was the feeling that I had that I wanted to kind of put into the book uh, that we, I thought, wanted to put into the book. And Jose may add maybe more to, to that. Yeah, what is the book? What is what is the project? I want to I want to hear more from from the editors. Sure. So the the book is called Reimagining Nabokov: Pedagogies for the Twenty First Century. Um, I can mention our original title was going to be um, Teaching the Book, something along the lines of Teaching the Book of to Generation Z, uh, which uh, turned out not to be a good title <laughs> for various reasons. <laughs> We didn't want to limit it to a particular generation, to a particular moment. 21st century at least gives us more time or more life to this book, hopefully. Um, <laughs> again, it's available open access. And um, also with the war in uh, Ukraine and uh, this Z movement in Russia, to, uh, adopting this Z as a symbol for uh, support for the war, it was not ultimately the, the direction we wanted to go with. But uh, the, the title we settled on, Reimagining the Bulk of Pedagogies for the 21st Century, I think speaks to the mission, at least that we set out with to, um, uh, well, re rethink how we're teaching a book of what context we want to incorporate in the classroom and in the scholarship. I think a lot of the essays in this volume um, uh, speak both to recent in the book of scholarship and new paths, et cetera, new directions that people are pursuing. Um, in studying the book of, and then how that's applied to the classroom. Um, so there's a range of um, essays or topics within these essays. Uh, the first section deals uh, deals with essentially digital projects, digital humanities uh, projects related to the book of, um, that have been used in the classroom. I contributed an essay in this section. Um, and then other sections have to do, again, with... Um, alternative readings to Nabokov um, or of Nabokov, um, like Sarah was saying, trying to, to read him from new angles, to historicize him in different ways, um, to reimagine him as much as we could. Uh, we wanted to incorporate um, essays that deal with texts that are maybe less commonly taught or read in, in, the, in the classroom. Um, and I can, you know, mention that that was a little tougher than we we hoped, but maybe may obvious in in hindsight that the things that are usually taught are the things that are usually taught. So getting around that is not impossible, but more difficult if, if it simply doesn't exist or doesn't happen. Um, but I think we got some of that, um, and you know, our our hope is to motivate, inspire other instructors and, and readers of the book to to consider him in in new uh, new ways. I liked it a lot. Sorry, if I may just just say, I I thought it was very interesting because 
I feel like a lot of times you'll get kind of the either or, you'll get here's a new pedagogical approach that's interesting, or you'll get here's a new reading that's interesting. But what I got from the book, at least, was the way that this sort of new um, approach to Nabokov can be intertwined with a new pedagogical approach overall. And so to, to me, that was very interesting. Oh, thank you. And and I like, I, I just want to say again that I love that it's open access because we have a lot of people that are interested in this stuff and it is so incredibly prohibitive if you do not have an institutional affiliation, which a lot of our listeners do not um, because it costs big money. So <laughs> it's, it's really wonderful that this can be available to people that are just interested um, but are not professors or who are not um, fools who went into graduate school, <laughs> such as I. Yeah. I. I should mention, too, um, it's published by Amherst College Press, and I, I want to, I don't know, thank them and make a plug <laughs> to <our laughs> editor Hannah and um, and the press as a whole. I, I think this this model of publishing open access, so anyone anywhere in the world can access the book, it's born digital, um, is incredible and I think radical in its own right. Like you're hinting at here, um, academic books or, or books published by academic publishers tend to be uh, expensive, prohibitively expensive. And this is free if you want the digital version. If you want a print copy, it's print on demand demand for just 20 bucks, um, which is pretty great. Um, and I think this speaks to the, the kind of radical impulses of, of the project as well that we want these ideas to be available to to anyone who's who's interested yeah it's not always bad right when you get academic publisher it's publishing a book for other academics it's not really meant for everyone i mean you could say we could say it is all all we want but a lot of times some of these books they're really just for like i don't know, like 25 people right uh max <laughs> um but this it's not a book that's written for just scholars of nabokov right it is at least to me, I thought it was an accessible read. That's still not like it's not like it's talking down to your audience, though. It's still very challenging at the same time. Mm-hmm. And if you're sorry, if you don't mind, I'm gonna slowly. I still want to talk about the book very briefly, but also kind of transition us into talking about signs and symbols or symbols and signs, as the New Yorker would have you believe. Uh, and I do want to say one thing that um, at least um, talking about non-specialist readers going into it as someone who's not, you know, does not a teacher of of literature. Uh, I, first of all, I got to say it's very readable, even from a relative uh, a newcomer, but also. When I read your contributions to this book, I get the the kind of two takeaways I I got were first of all um, the importance of communal reading of reading not as you know always a solo activity but as one where uh, getting at knowledge can be uh, enhanced by other people through you know like the project that you did Jose of having your students work online and have those you know communal annotations uh, and so that's good that we're in this podcast now we can all kind of <laughs> talk to each other and build on these ideas so. Uh, in addition to that, I kind of wanted to talk briefly about, as I was reading your piece, Sarah, um, you talk about this idea of reparative epistemology. And I know we've been kind of talking about a bunch of a lot of larger concepts, but at least when I was reading that, I was kind of some things were clicking in terms of after I'd read Signs and Symbols. And I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. This uh, like I feel like I understand this piece better in light of how you're talking about um, of, of this notion, which. I, do you mind just like elaborating a little bit on on that idea and you know evolving in, in that reading because at least it for me it helped makes sign symbols make more sense. Thank you so much for that comment and the invitation to maybe elaborate about this because yes oh my god it it definitely uh, what's the word there is a there's a almost like a natural marriage between reparative reading and signs and symbols 
it's uh, something that can and almost should happen in the story or in the mind of the reader reading the story. Um, very briefly, reparative epistemology, the term itself, comes from uh, Elizabeth Kosofsky Sedgwick's famous um, classical canonical essay written in the 1990s uh, on the difference between reparative reading and paranoid reading. In her argument, uh, a paranoid position, it's a position, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a, a kind of knowledge, it's a way to acquire or harvest knowledge or maybe glean knowledge from, from a text, a symbol, or something else. Um, and in her reading, paranoid position is everywhere. She argues that this is how we generally approach uncertainty. Whenever there is something to be known, we usually know or learn or find out or discover or read from a position of a paranoid, in her terminology, again, it's it's not uh, psychologically diagnostic necessarily, but it's a position where we are afraid. We are driven by fear. We are driven by fear of humiliation, of missing something, of not knowing, essentially. It is about enmity. It's about trying to find um, proof that the author is hiding something from us, and we are out to outmaneuver or outsmart that uh, sinister figure, the author. It is based according to Sedgwick, in uh, the hermeneutics of suspicion in by described, uh, theorized by Paul Ricoeur in uh, uh, the 20th century. And again, she says that paranoid position is everywhere. This is how we know, learn, find out, and read. She suggests that fear doesn't have to be the only position or the only dri drive uh, or the, the only effect that drives uh, your reading. We don't have to be afraid when we read something. We don't have to hurry to know to prevent being afraid when we read something. She suggests that instead of being afraid, we can actually be driven by joy. We can choose positive effect as our goal. We don't have to be always on the lookout, always embedded within that uh, hermeneutics of suspicion or epistemology of enmity, as she calls it. Instead, we can actually uh, be motivated by a wish to find or to give or to show care or to experience joy or pleasure or become over-invested in style and play. So something else that um, it's kind of like a psychological concept or complex behind our motivation for reading may, may be different. Um, I, I wanted it to be brief, but I feel like it's not brief at all. But um, the most important part is that uh, it's a the, the reparative position is about acknowledging it's they're both pessimistic, both paranoid and reparative. They both acknowledge that the uh, conditions for reading, the conditions where knowledge is produced are bad. We are 
tragically isolated, misunderstood, or deceived, or uh, we're facing systemic oppression or something else, whatever that may be. Both of those positions acknowledge it. It's just that what we seek in reading and knowing and forming or producing knowledge may be different. It's not to confirm our fear that pushed us towards a text. It is to repair the world by the imperfect means we we find. Um, so this idea was proposed uh, in the 90s. It became popular in queer theory. In particular, there is a reparative turn that many scholars kind of adopted since then. It's a form of queer optimism. We acknowledge the repression. We acknowledge the deficiency or the isolation or the uh, repression and persecution and trauma. But we choose to respond to all that with, not with the confirmation of that fear, but um, something else, right? <laughs> A different different effect. We're looking for something else while we still can, as long as we breathe. Maybe it'd be, maybe we can link it to signs and symbols a little bit. And, and I, I don't know if we've explicitly said kind of why <laughs> we're, talking about this, um, I think we've sort of hinted at it, that, you know, the, the common, I don't know about the common, but a frequent reading of the story we've kind of said is that all of these apparent signs and symbols throughout the text, um, and I can quote some of them, it's one of the first paragraphs, uh, that Friday, everything went wrong. The underground train lost its life current between two stations, and for a quarter of an hour, one could hear nothing but the dutiful beating of one's heart and the rustling of newspapers. The bus they had to take next kept them waiting for ages. And when it did come, it was crammed with garrulous high school children. It was raining hard as they walked up the brown path leading to the sanatorium. And I'm going to skip ahead, but kind of the most graphic one, I think, for me is a few feet away under a swaying and dripping tree. A tiny half-dead, unfledged bird was helplessly twitching in a puddle. So the kind of traditional reading of, of the text, I think, is where th- that the narrator, Nabokov, is inserting all these uh, images, all these details to kind of push us toward reading pessimistically, um, and maybe like a paranoid uh, person might. Um, and by the end of the story, we're expecting bad thing after bad thing after bad thing to happen. And all of these things, these images, these moments in the story are imbued with this pessimism and this uh, suggestion that things are just going to keep going wrong. And thus, that final third phone call by that little girl, um, or the girl, uh, is actually not the girl, but the sanatorium calling to say that the, the young man had, in fact, committed suicide. He had a history of um, attempted attempted suicide um and the the story just kind of dropping off at the end there um uh, might be this gloomy uh ending so i think yeah uh, along the lines of what sarah was saying there's that tendency or the 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 story kind of pushes us to read in this direction and to read and kind of see uh, uh read meaning into these images that you know, don't have any meaning on their own. The birds, little birds die all the time. That, that sounds like a crazy thing to say. <laughs> we, we have this bird apartment in our backyard, meaning a, a big birdhouse with multiple entrances and stuff. So we, we find some dead birds occasionally. 
They're fragile uh, creatures. They, they are. Yeah. I'm immediately more suspicious of Jose now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I realized how it was sounding. Um, but that doesn't mean that what that phone call um, is actually signifying is the boy's death. But um, that's one way, you know, it has been read. Um, and alternatively, the I, I don't know if it's necessarily reparative, Sarah, you can confirm or not, but my preferred take or the way that I um, prefer to read the story is that this isn't a puzzle to solve, that these things don't mean anything on their own, but we can appreciate this uh, instability, this uncertainty, this in-betweenness of, of everything. The, the boy is not dead by the end of the story, for sure. Uh, you can read it one way or read it the other. It's um, this both and uh, at the same time, it's, it's uh, the cat in the box, right? Schrodinger's cat. It's <laughs> there's, there's no unveiling of the the cat boy uh, bird hybrid, um, and that's the the point to to my mind that we can appreciate the text, appreciate the style, appreciate the the imagery, and kind of take pleasure in, in this kind of um, experience of wrestling with these images, whether or not they ultimately mean anything right and that's why i was i gotta say i, I really appreciated reading your even though obviously um the your uh, the book you've edited uh and talking about pedagogies doesn't directly touch on signs and symbols like when i said it helped me like really pull it all together because after i initially read it i started doing some background reading and i won't specifically name these articles i was reading but they're really getting into like you talk about the nitty-gritty of like like you said sarah of a suggestion of these these characters are suggested to be Jewish, and they've had people who, uh, in their family, who were killed in the Holocaust, and therefore, you know, that beach is a reference to Buchenwald, and therefore, you know, talking about death or talking about how all these other named characters start with, you know, soul and all these like these particulars, or even one was like talking about how I forget like the number of lines in the paragraph spelled out in 1948, 1947, the year of publication, and I was kind of like, I don't get this i feel like i'm being led to suggest so much is being led to suggest so much but i don't follow where it's going once you've reached like pierre and war and peace right, um, right. you know spelling you know but it's like numerology you know side plot i think you've done just like a touch over yeah yeah so we're going to that and i was reading you know your piece you started talking about reparative epistemology and i was like oh I think, wait, I think I get this. I go back and I read it again, and there's this passage which now stands out to me, which makes me, and I don't know if you would agree with this characterization or not, uh, leads me towards kind of what you're talking about, Jose, of, oh, this, this feels like a joke. There were, a joke's being played on us as a reader, especially for a suspicious reader, uh, when Nabokov talks about what the, the psychologist term say, say that this, you know, the son has, um, which leads to him being institutionalized, which they call referential mania in these, uh, from the text here. In these very rare cases, the patient imagines that everything happen, happening around him is a veiled reference to his personality in existence. He ex excludes real people from the conspiracy because he considers himself to be so much more intelligent than other men. Phenomenal nature shadows him wherever he goes. Clouds in the staring sky transmit to each other by means of slow signs, incredibly detailed information regarding him, and so on and such forth. And I went back and I was on the second read, I was reading that, and I was like, oh, so this is, this feel, this is kind of, in this reading, at least to my understanding, makes this just joke. Like it's putting all these things out here for you to lead, lead you in a circle going nowhere. I don't know if you'd agree with that characterization. I guess there's certainly reasons to say other readings could still be legitimate, but it did, for me at least, tie it together. Definitely. Uh, the reader is kind of pushed to at least entertain the possibility of engaging in uh, 
a little bit of referential mania that the boy is suffering from, clearly suffering from. I think suffering is the operative word. And the author is saying, almost saying, we can imagine him saying that a paranoid state of mind where so many bad things happened in a row and you can only expect bad things to happen next uh, is going to deprive you of joy, basically, if you persist in this. And most importantly, it's not just about an emotional payout of paranoid versus reparative. It's about cognitive honesty, almost, because what paranoid kind of attention is doing is it eliminates surprise. It basically describes the world before we see the world. Your brain kind of preempts whatever's going to happen. And the Bakov is saying, not only will you miss joy if if you do that, if you persist in this referential mania, if you know what's going to happen next, you will actually miss what the world is really about. It's it, it's way more surprising and varied and different and unexpected and unpredictable um, than we may assume. It's almost like a cognitive exercise as much as an emotional exercise. At least that's what I would probably say to my students in order to advertise the story. Yeah, well, speaking of it as, we know we've been kind of talking in sort of this direction of understanding, but I also want to ask and kind of open up a space to say, are there other you know, features or elements or other readings you think might be important for people to understand and going into the story to understand it? Or do you feel like this kind of this reading captures what you would consider to be the most important parts? I personally like what Jose just said, and I want to amplify that, uh, that place of indeterminacy at the end of the story. We actually don't know what happens. Our brain wants to jump to conclusions for sure. But it doesn't mean that uh, it, it's not what the story is doing. It's not what the story is telling us. It leaves us there in that space. And maybe it's worthwhile to sit in that space of indeterminacy, of not knowing, of being open to either possibility, of of maybe examining what it is that we feel. I really like that. And it's academically it's untenable that's the horrible thing like intellectually it's it it leaves you itchy it's almost like something's like i need an answer i need an answer it's just if it's just a question mark it's not enough it seems and um in that sense this is why i think it was so liberating to work on the project that jose and i were working on because it was focused on pedagogy and pedagogy allows for that um, sense of open-endedness. I think uh, way more than academic scholarship, as, uh, um, more than criticism, let's put it this way. Criticism wants to give answers. If If it's all just about, oh, we don't know, we don't know, then it's difficult to justify our existence to our fiscally minded superiors in the academic hierarchy. Um, <laughs> students love that, though. That's the beauty of it. It's liberating in that sense. 
I think sometimes they don't though, right? Some students expect it and demand answers want that. For sure. They tolerate it. They not necessarily, they tolerate it more, I think, than uh, our colleagues. I think though it's, it's different. It's answering a different question in your book than what criticism is always trying to answer. And in a lot of ways, it's a more important question now, which is how do you get people to like reading? And how do you get them interested in reading things that are very challenging? Um, and so that I think is sort of democratic in some ways, in, in the sense that it's not me telling you what the what the interpretation is, because everybody realizes, right, this is your own interpretation, right? You, no, nobody really ultimately holds that key to understanding. And so I think acknowledging that in the classroom is a, is a first step in sort of you know, bringing back that joy that we have into reading and right, acknowledging that college is not supposed to just be um, I tell you something and then you remember it the rest of your life. It's sort of a, it is right, a new, a new way to conceptualize uh, really everything, but, but, um, even the process of learning itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I think that's a really important thing for an instructor to like have an awareness of, or have some sort of working knowledge of. Um, so that's what I thought was interesting reading through and trying to link it back to signs and symbols because <laughs> I don't know. I thought like if I had to lecture on this, I thought about it and I was like, this would be like, I don't know. I wouldn't like lecturing on this. I would want to discuss it. Right. It's like a different mindset. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that, that's what made, uh, when I, what I was really thinking of as I was going into or, or coming out of, I guess, reading uh, your piece, Jose, which is that um, talking about this hermeneutics of suspicion, it almost feels like to me, and I'm going to come out of here with left field of talking about something that very not literary, which is that uh, a dominant way of understanding media maybe you could blame this on marvel I, I don't necessarily know if you should but uh when you go and talk to non-specialists about media you predominantly have this idea of like people talk about theories of media like what does this really mean what is the secret behind here what is actually going on here this similar idea i think of like there is a secret world here which you we have to come in as as an audience and decode these symbols to figure out what it is and it feels like even people who are not in this this discipline uh, who might only engage with with mass media are kind of trained to be similarly suspicious of everything they're doing. What does this really mean? What's really going on here? Who's really a scroll? Um, and I don't know if that lands with anyone, but <laughs> but um, I got it. I got it. okay, perfect. Thank you. But like when you were talking, when your piece, and maybe you know, maybe let me know if this is not your experience. These are your, these are your students, but you know, you do a lot of projects with your students. I haven't been on Twitter recently, but in the past, I've been on there. I've, you're always posting like creations, memes, drawings your students create, which I always think is, is great. But in this sort of communal reading, by doing those communal notes, it felt like the direction or how they talked about it, um, I, I can't say it shifted, but the way they primarily engaged with it was in in this, like, I don't know, at least some of the quotes you chose, like this not suspicious way, in this way that they some of them approached it with humor, some of them approached it with sincerity, but they approached it with like as we, we as kind of sarah you've talked about without with not without fear but with at least despite fear maybe i should say um it seems like it kind of just inherently this communal reading almost seems to push away that suspicion by necessity of engaging with someone else um i don't know if yeah. you agree with that characterization I th yeah i think that's fair um so really quickly what i did in the, that class was create a website mm -hmm. maybe you can provide the link if yeah. anyone's yeah curious. um um, and students wrote some essays, but part of the project was that they would annotate the series of novels that we read throughout the semester. Uh, we read Invitation to Beheading, um, one of Nabokov's Russian novels. We, we were reading it in translation. Um, and what, what I 
took away from that experience of designing this assignment for the students was that it, it was really freeing and liberating. I think, you know, traditionally, um, it's a lot of top-down <laughs> instruction and um, in classes. Um, obviously, I'm there as the quote-unquote expert. I shouldn't say quote-unquote. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm being humble. Um, there's information context interpretations that I can, that I do share with them, but I want my classroom space to be a space of experimentation and, um, exploration of these texts. Like Sarah was suggesting, this is a space where we can get away with that. Um, and where I think we should encourage it and having students, uh, experiment and, and try different kinds of readings and, um, be open to taking risks. Um, and, I think the bulk of it's great for this. You know, there's a, a long history of various kinds of readings and approaches to Nabokov, but um, we're not limited to those readings. Um, some of these students were taking a Russian literature class for the first time. And we're kind of nervous about doing that, but, you know, I tasked them with looking up references to things or places or people in the novel. Some of them are real, some of them are not. And uh, that I think gave them a lot of agency um, in being responsible essentially for a particular chunk of the text that they could then uh, bring into the discussions and feel um, comfortable or more familiar um, and kind of wield interpretive power that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and being able to share that with others, I think is really powerful and um, uh, productive for podcast reading groups or classrooms, all these sorts of things where you have these different perspectives and different backgrounds and um, experiences kind of merging or exchanging. And uh, yeah, I, I think, again, that's at the heart of the, our project and at the heart of kind of the, the bulk of studies that I want to see where um, we can try new things and we can encourage our students and others, colleagues, um, people not in uh, academia to, to approach Nabokov openly, both in terms of the approaches you take and kind of taking on the challenge. He's, he's not always an easy read, um, but it's it's worth it, I think, and it's, it's pleasurable to read him as well. I, I'd be curious to hear what Sarah has to say about this, and, and you, Matt, and, and Cameron as well, um, as as far as I understand, you hadn't read this before. Um, but one thing that I think is important or maybe useful to, to think about as you read the story is the shifts in narration, which are still kind of a puzzle to me. Um, because we, we begin, I mean, the whole thing is beautifully written. I think that's undeniable. Um, but it's relatively, I don't know, more or less straightforward documentation of what's happening to this family. But then there are these passages that kind of appear maybe out of nowhere, um, maybe it's uh, uh, coming, emanating out of the characters' minds, um, but they're much more poetic. And Sarah alluded to one of these earlier, this and much more she accepted, for after all living did mean accepting the loss of one joy after another, not even joys in her case, mere possibilities of improvement. She thought of the endless waves of pain that for some reason or other, she and her husband had to endure the invisible giants hurting her boy in the in some unimaginable fashion of the incalculable amount of tenderness contained in the world of the fate of this tenderness which is either crushed or wasted or transformed into madness 
of neglect, neglected children humming to themselves in unswept corners, of beautiful weeds that cannot hide from the farmer and helplessly have to watch the shadow of his simian stoop leave mangled flowers in its wake as the monstrous darkness approaches. And I realized after talking about dead baby birds, <laughs> this passage is going to be an, uh, a very odd impression of me. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, the, the, these moments that the narration shifts the way things are described. And I, I think it's, um, uh, it's still a bit of a, a puzzle, maybe not one with a solution as we've discussed, but um, something I think worth paying attention to as, as you read. Sarah, did you? Yeah, um, thank you so much uh, for reading the entire sentence. It's my favorite sentence. It's dead center in the story, I think. Uh, as far as I remember, I don't have the book handy, but it is so evocative and so poetic, as you said, Jose. Uh, it's kind of draws all the attention to itself. When I first started reading, uh, when I first started teaching the story, I reread it. And I noticed, um, I'm not sure if it's the same thing that we're talking about, uh, that you, Jose, was talking about specifically, but I noticed that the narration varies or alternates between matter-of-fact statement of some kind of deprivation, some kind of tragedy, some kind of pain, source of pain, um, loss, hurt, with that kind of evocative language. In the very first part of the story, when referential meaning is uh, described, that paragraph ends with a similarly uh, poetic, uh, poetic doesn't do justice to it. It's, it's like mesmerizing, this kind of language about granite, about groans of uh, furs, um, uh, I, I really wish I had the book uh, at hand, but the, I noticed that when I first started t teaching, and then I try to explain it when I uh, pointed it out to my students by saying that uh, Nabokov does or engages with a little bit of uh, cognitive disinhibition every uh, time he mentions pain. I think pain was one of his creative preoccupations, suffering uh, in its most irredeemable form, something that does exist uh, in the world and screams for some kind of justification or meaning or, or something else. And we have... I don't know, millennia of philosophical investigations where, oh, this is the meaning of suffering. Um, I don't know. Uh, we all want to believe, our brain is wired to believe in the just world. We have just world hypothesis. This is the common uh, form of bias in the world where we think that people who are suffering are suffering for a reason. We want to find a reason for it, even if there is none, even if when it's random. Um, and Nabokov, I think, is engaging with a little bit of that in the story when he narrates one misfortune after another, but in between, he will engage in that sort of profound uh, metaphorical language where things are connected that are not supposed to be connected. 
that kind of referential mania, which gives joy, which connects words and ideas and events and phenomena in ways that are uh, that that lead to little explosions of joy in the reader's mind. Uh, and the Simeon stoop, it's haunting. It's so unbelievably memorable. Uh, once you read it, you will never forget that. And as the monstrous darkness approaches, by the way, the Simeon stoop was added in the second version. This is why I'm saying that I think Nabokov is improving his text, amplifying this step by step. So this is bad happening. And this look what the human mind can do even in this horrible situation. And then another statement or uh, instance of misfortune, loss, tragedy, disruption, violence, uh, erasure. And then the next um, paragraph or section of the story will be about, look what the human mind can do. It's like, uh, it's, it's a weird counterpoint, I guess, um, of, of those two very different, uh, I don't want to say perspective, but w- whatever that may be. And then the story ends inconclusively. Nabokov doesn't allow either of those impulses to win in the end. It's it Whatever wins happens or wins in the mind of the reader once the book is put down. Um, and it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. It could be another instance of misfortune, another item on the list. There are so many of them. We can expect it to grow. Or it could be another beautiful paragraph where look what the human mind can do. Um, I don't know. Th- to me, this is the <laughs> Nabokov is or can be pretty uh, annoying and infuriating in so many ways. As the author of Lolita, he is that and nothing else in that book. But when it comes to him as a writer as a whole, on the whole, like the oeuvre, the 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 story. Um, the narratives that he created, I think this is one of those, along with Pnin, uh, where he, I don't know, he it's transcendental almost. Uh, it just gives you something that you don't expect from a white cis dude, uh, you know, from the mid-20th century. I think, I think it's curious what you're saying, um that I mean those two uh passages those two particular transcendental passages and I totally agree with what you said come at the end of sections one and sections two um which might mean that we should read the end of part three there are three parts in the story numbered parts uh which is the final paragraph this listing of at the end the listing of the different uh jelly flavors and um Gennady Barb Tarlow um in the Nabokovian and a mentor of mine um, suggested that this sequence implies that things are going bad. It's getting more and more um, tart. I always get my flavors mixed up, but it's <laughs> worse and worse. He had got to crab apple uh, sour when the telephone rang again. So maybe the implication is something bad is coming. Um, but anyway, as we're going, I mean, this is, I guess, part of, you know, the upside of, of this kind of communal experience is you get to have 
put more and more thoughts together. So and as we're talking about, this makes me even just talking about, I think about other recent podcasts, we not too long ago, we're talking to um, Dr. Tatiana Grishkovich about um, the Kreutzer Sonata and um, a little bit about, was it uh, Nabokov's uh, Poznishev um, address? I forget exactly what it's called and connecting all things we were talking about there bring here so now this is this has been fantastic yeah we were like what are the odds we get hermeneutics of suspicion like <laughs> right. twice like back to back just like on scheduling like uh, peculiarities yeah we also just did leviathan as you started talking about uh kind of a suffering sarah i also started we had this long discussion about the book of job as we were talking about the movie leviathan so i was like this has been great this has been truly fantastic as, as neurons are, are firing on at least uh, some of the cylinders i got <laughs> what, what's left what's of left, this, right, what's left at this got, point yeah. <laughs> um but matt i'll give it to you to to kind of take us over to some community questions that people had yeah we have quite this garnered quite a lot of interest <laughs> on our discord server um but the the very first softball question that that i have is what book do you recommend for somebody who's just starting with the book of um somebody that asked this question said that they had read Lolita but it wasn't easy and it contained topics that they didn't really want to read about and presumably not everybody wants to read about um, yeah, sorry do you mind if I break in here also we categorically cannot recommend Lolita on this podcast because in college one of my housemates played a prank on me where I've never bought a copy of Lolita but I had a, my high school girlfriend gave me a copy and I kept <laughs> it to college then another roommate left me her books among them was Lolita and then that my roommate saw that was really funny so they started giving me more and more copies of Lolita, Lolita until I had a big collection and when we had a party people came over they'd say oh this is Cameron's collection of Lolita and there'd be like six which is obviously not what you want uh <laughs> so we, we can't recommend that one <laughs> big, big fan <laughs> um okay yeah well that, that's not the one or any of the one that <laughs> and i uh decided to to suggest despite what this um community member suggested um I, i'll just be brief uh the ones that came to mind for me were the delusion defense nabokov's third novel um originally in russian um about chess if you've uh watched the uh queen's gambit it might be might be of interest as well um and if you want to get into the more experimental and wacky in some way uh pale fire i think pale fire is um its humor is underrated i think it has, you know great standing and um is, is a classic um but um I, I think it's such a funny book and, and incredible in what it pulls off what's the most pretentious book I could read? <laughs> If I had, if I had like one where people are like, "Wow, this guy's really smart," he read this by the book. What book is that? Uh, I, I would say Ada or Arder. Okay. Um, it's his longest. It's a, it's a big one. So if you want to put that on your bookshelf, on your bedside table, or on the subway or something, that's. Oh yeah, yeah no, I'm not gonna read it <laughs> for display only for other people to see, right? But, um, yeah. Sarah, what do you think? Um, Bale Fire probably in. In the more experimental category, or ambitious, or pretentious, if you will. Um, but my personal favorite, and the book that I think was, mm, what's the word? Again, uh, it's it's not a successful book. It was successful when it was published. It put Nabokov on the map. Before Lolita, there was Pnin. And it it served that purpose for him, um, but I also think it's 
success in purely literary terms. I think it achieves more than uh, the ostensible ambition may be, or the motivation of the author may have been, the authorial intention behind the book. Uh, I think it's the most humane and the kindest book he wrote. It's about uh, a Russian professor in America undergoing, again, a series of misfortunes and somehow managing to uh, preserve his kindness despite it all. And I am convinced at this point that Pnin, P-N-I-N, is actually meant to evoke the word in English, uh, which word processors very often correct this title too, which is pain. Um, and uh, it's also the book where nobody dies on stage. So uh, the only novel <laughs> in the book of Rose where nobody <laughs> dies on stage. So another reason to like it. So Nabokov did not like Dostoevsky, which is a terrible blow to uh, some people listening to this who may not know too much about Nabokov, uh, but do love Dostoevsky. Um, can we, why did Nabokov dislike Dostoevsky? Um, is there a convincing reason or no? Uh, ever since I learned that, uh, he, and then parenthesis, or brackets here, Nabokov lost his steam in my eyes, and I haven't read any of his work. Sorry, I, I, mixed, I did a mixture of uh, paraphrasing and reading exactly that question, so apologies to that community member. <laughs> Cameron stopped reading forever after he that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to summarize the readings I did in grad school on this very topic. And it just so happens that the articles on this topic were published by the two mentors of mine, Julian Connolly and uh, Alexander Dalinian. Um, and the uh, most concise version of the answer would be uh, that um Dostoevsky engaged in a kind of psychological, emotionally charged writing that Nabokov wanted to do as well, but under strict control of the author. He wanted to achieve the same literary effects that Dostoevsky did, uh, but without ever losing uh, control as the author, never ever allowing his characters to dominate the plot. For Nabokov, it was always about the tricks that the author can engage in, can show off uh, in achieving a certain outcome in the plot, as opposed to letting creating a personality or a persona and then letting the personality grow, become, do things, relate to others, etc. I think that would be the answer. And and plus, Dostoevsky was becoming famous as the father of existentialism in the 40s. His reputation skyrocketed after the war, especially in American academia. And I think he was annoyed by how quickly it happened and kind of like, oh, Dostoevsky is not a good writer. Why paying so much attention? It, it, was, a, it was a way to kind of assert his own growing fame in America, in, especially as, a, as an instructor. I think it was more complicated behind the scenes than on the surface of things. Okay, rapid fire. Did the book of interact with any expats in France, specifically Joyce Fitzgerald Hemingway, or did he have any opinions on their writing that might be interesting? I feel like Joyce might be a, 
an interesting one from Jose's perspective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as someone who knows a thing or two uh, about Joyce as well. Yeah. They, they met a few times in, um, in France and the, the first meeting is this fantastic story. There's an, an article about this. Um, which I'm sure will be in the, in the show notes. I can send a PDF. <laughs> um, cough, cough. <laughs> uh, if anyone needs it. Um, uh, it's great. Italy, that what happened. So Nabokov at the last minute was asked to give a lecture because um, someone else had to cancel. Um, so he's giving a lecture on Pushkin, I believe. Um, and he looks up from the podium and he sees not only the Hungarian soccer team, but James Joyce sitting in the audience who just by chance was there that evening as well. Um, they had some mutual acquaintances, friends, um, but he's there. Um, and in his recollection of this moment, he, he mentions Nabokov mentions uh, Joyce's glasses gleaming, um, I believe, uh, as he sits there kind of listening to Nabokov lecture. Um, and in fact, Nabokov offered, he wrote to Joyce uh, to uh, with an offer to to translate Ulysses, um, which you know, unfortunately, I think unfortunately it didn't didn't come to be translated into Russian. Um, it's this amazing what if um, in in world literature. Um, yeah, and they interacted a few more times uh, through these mutual acquaintances. Uh, and what did he think about his writing? Uh, loved Ulysses, had some complaints about it, certainly. Uh, apparently despised Finnegan's Wake, um, <laughs> called it I don't know, some something like uh, hokey pokey or sludge, some strong kind of folkloric nonsense, uh, something along those lines. Good, good. And presumably Joyce's glasses were gleaming because of the brilliance of Nabokov's words <laughs> like, yeah. as he was delivering. The, yeah, uh, these words were just bouncing off. Yeah, sparkling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> radiating off <laughs> inspiring everyone in the room <laughs> let's talk about beef and then we'll, we'll wrap up here um which modern author would nabokov love and which would he absolutely have beef with so the, the one that came to mind and maybe it's a recency uh bias uh is jenny erpenbeck the german writer um sure go go and gone about the um migration uh, crisis in Europe and visitation, which is a novel about a house um, and its many occupants over the years. Um, her most recent novel, Kairos, just came out um, in English translation. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think there's something about the kind of light touches of experimentation in the novel, um, her novels, as well as the, her prose the style that reminds me of the book which isn't necessarily a, a sign or a symbol that he would love it but <laughs> uh, um there's something i think uh something there that I, I think he might appreciate um and and this topic of migration and exile and refugee i think would certainly speak to to him personally thank you jose for the name because i never Part of her. Um, I'm excited to dig deeper, I guess. Um, it's interesting. I think my impression uh, generally was that um, that created, curated persona that Nabokov created um, in 
his time as a college professor and then as a world famous public figure, public author, had a taste. And that taste was often exclusionary in a way that created this impression that, oh, he likes certain authors and he hates others. And I think this is where the question is coming from a little bit. Like, um, he must really like somebody and he must really hate people, uh, authors that do not conform to his expectations. Um, And I think Nabokov, the person, had a taste that was broader than that. Uh, At least that's my impression. When reading his letters, for instance, you come across him passages where he is raving about an author that you never expect him to be enthusiastic about. And for reasons, explicitly stated reasons that, again, clash with uh, the reasons usually given by that public persona. Uh, Like uh, Celine, the French homosexual uh, uh, low-class author who writes about criminal life um, in France. Uh, Nabokov was ecstatic when he discovered the author and he was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And he only admitted that in private though. This is the thing. In private, his taste could be surprising and interesting. And um, I think this is where I'm at. This is This is where my mind goes when I'm trying to think of an answer to this question. Like, Anyone really who is good at writing, at just going with the flow of creation, creativity, experimentation, uh, play with language and cognition, and ways to tell a story. Anybody who engages in it with earnestness and abandon can probably win points from the back of um and and, yeah i really hope that that's the case maybe um projecting finnegan's wake he he hated it finnegan's wake he hated Mm -hmm. that's what he said again in 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 public in private (laughs) he has he wrote ada which is for one thing for another there's a passage in lolita where it's a mixture of languages that Nabokov himself admitted in that passage, there's a quote that, oh, I'm actually, you know, ventriloquizing James Joyce, the great, the the sublime Dubliner, the Dublinois sublime or whatever the French is. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm being contrarian, perhaps, and I'm, and I'm sorry if I <laughs> across this set. Well, the difference is uh, he did it better, so then, then it's okay. <laughs> right. That's what he would say. Maybe much like Cameron's friends leaving him copies of Lolita and the Boko's <laughs> friends would leave him copies of Finnegan's Awake, and he was just really riled up that one time. <laughs> I think uh, for now, uh, that's, a, that's a good place to leave it. I think that's a good answer, good answer to leave it on. Um, Sarah, Jose, thank you both so much for being here and sharing so much knowledge. This has been such a wonderful conversation and has, been, like, has tied up a lot of other questions that we've had on our minds recently, or at least given us a way forward. So that's been, that's been fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. I would say buy their book, but it's free. <laughs> so ah, now you have to read it. But I believe you can if you want to, if you happen to have either an institutional library or that kind of money. Yes. Oh, yeah. You can You can also buy it. Yeah. And it's just 20 bucks. If, if 
birthday money, whatever. There you go. Tooth fairy. You can find a link in the show notes. Prefer the hard copy, yeah. Right. <laughs> and the hard copy is nice to read from. It's been it's been it's been sitting in my bag for for um for like the last month, I think now. So been picking it out, very easy to read. So it's a great satchel reader. I don't know if that's a term, an equivalent to your coffee reader, coffee table reader. I would also recommend that you pick up two copies because the the cover, the front and the back cover is a big oh. picture of Nabokov. So if you put two copies together, it'll form Nabokov, his whole face. <laughs> so if you want to display it to everyone, you can go ahead and do that. And you should. Right. You should display it. You should let everyone know. Both about Nabokov <laughs> and about the book. But uh, thank you both for joining us though, so much. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, guys. And in addition to thanking Sarah and Jose for joining us today and sharing their knowledge, we wanted to thank all of you for listening this far. And you may be wondering at this point, what are we tackling next week? Well, we're heading back to Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bogakov, and we're going to be covering chapters 10 through 18. So if you read along with us, that's your goal. All right. Well, to help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to show notes containing all the research that went into the episode, head on over to our website, SlavicLitPod.com. Before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters, Ben, Jeff, Mai, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pack Rob. Uh, we wouldn't be able to make this podcast without your support covering uh, our many expenses from music to website to all the other things that just rack up as you're doing this sort of thing. So seriously, thank you for all your help. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peremotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify, and the links, as well as the spelling, are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>